Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I discover how quantum bits can be made using a bottom-up approach that's based on synthetic chemistry. And later on, I look at what's new in the physics of quasi-crystals, lightning, and lasers. An important challenge for those developing new quantum technologies is how to create quantum bits, or qubits, that can reliably store and process quantum information. Information that can be easily destroyed by environmental factors such as heat and noise. Physicists have tended to take a top-down approach to creating qubits, often fabricating them in ways that are reminiscent of how conventional electronic devices are made. However, it's also possible to create quantum devices using a bottom-up approach that is based on the principles of synthetic chemistry. To talk about this approach to quantum technology and other areas of research, I'm joined down the line from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology by the chemist Dana Friedman. Hi, Dana. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, Dana, you you take a bottom-up approach to creating qubits. Can you describe how this is done? Yeah, absolutely. So, with synthetic chemistry, we have this amazing ability to put atoms exactly where we want. If you think about, for example, a tablet of aspirin, every single one of those tablets is comprised of molecules that are precisely designed for a purpose. If you translate this idea towards quantum technologies, you can imagine that you can position one atom next to another and make modifications to design structure. Not only can you control the physical structure with molecules such as aspirin, but you can also control the electronic properties by modulating the connectivity and the identity of atoms. And so we take those key attributes inherent to synthetic chemistry, attributes that we take for granted in aspects outside of quantum technologies, and we bring them to the design of quantum systems. And and as I mentioned in the in the introduction, uh, qubits uh, or quantum bits can be very very delicate. Um, d- does your approach allow you to to make qubits that are per- perhaps re- more resistant to environmental heat and noise than than the qubits that are made using a a, a traditional uh, top down approach? Um, you know, not necessarily. So. One uh, really fun attribute of quantum systems. So back um, when one of the first applications of quantum information science, quantum computing, was initially being developed, the key challenge was, uh, one of the key challenges was overcoming decoherence. And so decoherence is fundamentally your collapse of your superposition state, your dead and alive cat, your up and down combination. Um, due to interaction with the environment. And so you can think about uh, phonons, you can think about other spins that are nearby. Pretty much any environmental perturbation will lead to collapse. So with a bottom-up approach, we can control interactions with the environment in a deliberate way 
But the place where this is potentially most impactful is in the inverse of the problem. And so for quantum computing, you just want to maximize your coherence time overall. But uh, enterprising physicists uh, realize that because uh, qubits for quantum computers have such profound interactions with the environment, they could be repurposed as quantum sensors. And when you start to look at the sensing component of quantum information science, being able to design systems that can be tuned for interaction with the environment and where you can specifically um, design them to respond to a given environmental perturbation becomes a lot more powerful. And so, you know, fundamentally, I don't think that molecular qubits will ever hit a superlative. I don't think they will ever be the best X, but they will be the best designer systems because they're the only designer systems for specific targeted applications. And that is a unique power that you can only find with bottom-up design. And and you mentioned uh, quantum sensors as a as a potential application. How could could, could you give uh, give us an example of how you could use molecular qubits as a sense? What 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 would you be sensing? Would it be magnetic field or temperature or or some other factor? That is a fantastic question. And so one large class of spin-based qubits, which is analogous to molecular qubits, and are as you said uh, fabricated from the top down are uh, defects in semiconductors, which have been elegantly named color centers because they make uh, these semiconductors colored. So these color centers um, have been, for example, the anionic nitrogen vacancy pair defect in diamond, the NV center, have been used for temperature sensing, magnetic field sensing, electric field sensing, and molecules um, should be able to have all of those properties with the added feature of spatial precision. So a molecule is inherently about a nanometer. So you could envision, for example, taking a molecule and putting it on the surface of a 2D magnet and measuring the magnetic field in discrete one nanometer distances. You could imagine um, taking a molecule and incorporating it into a biological system where you want to study the spin state of a metal undergoing catalytic turnover. Uh, you could imagine taking a molecule and, um, as has been done with the NV centers, measuring temperature at um, very small increments. And so all of those things, in theory, are possible with a molecule that can be designed for specific compatibility with the sensing environment and potentially um, incredibly small size resolution coupled to that. So, so for example, could, could you create a system that, um, I don't know, could, could go into, in, into somebody's body and detect very small magnetic fields, for example, created by the brain and, and sort of be compatible with, with, with the biological system that you're putting it into? Um, I'll say aspirationally as a 30-year problem, that is a key goal, right? That is not something that we're going to do tomorrow um, or anywhere near tomorrow. And I think that uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but I think one potential challenge with such a hot field is over-promising. Um, there are a lot of core proof-of-concept demonstrations that need to be overcome to progress in that way but that is absolutely on our radar as a grand challenge. And and would it be possible for you just to sort of describe, a, a lot of our, our listeners will not be familiar with what 
synthetic chemistry is. So it is the idea that essentially you've got this fantastic cookbook that <laughs> that you can use to, to, to make a molecule with very specific properties, uh, very specific quantum properties in, in this case. Yeah, absolutely. And so there are really two branches to think about with synthetic chemistry. So the first thing that you want to do is figure out what molecule you want to make. And so figure out the properties and then design a target system. And so for that, for example, let's say that you want to um, control the position of nuclear spins. And this is something which is really challenging with a top-down approach. So let's say that you want to have an electronic spin, which is five nanometers away from a nuclear spin. You can draw that on paper with plausible bonds and think about how the different elements interact with each other. And that, that seems fairly straightforward, right? But then the other component is modulating the electronic structure. And so, for example, one thing that um, we've demonstrated is optical readout of um, magnetic uh, states, ODMR, so optically detected magnetic resonance in a molecule. To do that, we need to control the spin structure of a molecule. And to do that, we want to think about where the electrons are here, the electrons in the d orbitals, and how we can arrange different organic moieties around a metal to um, design a ground state electronic structure and an excited state electronic structure. So you take all of that together, all of um, the fundamental inorganic chemistry knowledge that we uh, teach to undergrads, and you, you can draw something. You can also put that thing that you've drawn into a computer and optimize the geometry and start to figure out if that's the right thing. And then you go into the lab to make it. Now, because this is a thing that's come out of your head and paper and knowledge, there isn't necessarily a cookbook for it. And so you have to look at this species that you've drawn and say, okay, there are similar things. So how can I take this species that I've drawn and kind of rip it apart into little pieces that I can then put back together? And you think about how every step can be used to construct the final um, thing. And so it is like cooking, but there's the design of cooking, right? You might uh, need a different preparation of your onions than you had before. You might want to brown your butter. Um, and all of those uh, features might not be clearly obvious in the final product, but if you don't, you know, properly brown your butter, then it'll taste funny in the end. Um, or, you know, more uh, akin to what we actually do potentially explode. But, you know, it, it's it's fun. And, and you, you talked a bit there about um, developing these qubits, that uh, molecular qubits that respond to light. Can, can, can you t talk a bit more about that research? What, 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 what are some potential applications of those uh, qubits that you're developing? Oh, so those are all of the applications that we've discussed. And so the thing that makes the uh, color centers, the um, top-down uh, defects in semiconductors powerful is that generally they can be read out with and initialized with optical light. And that's really powerful for sensing because you, in, you don't want to microwave a human. And these transitions, when we're trying to think about um, the right transition, um, you end up at a microwave level if you're looking at spin. Uh, just in terms of where you are in the EM spectrum. And so being able to translate something where you would microwave a human to something where you can shine a light on a human is a good direction to go in general. Um, 
And so effectively, we're mimicking these top-down systems with a bottom-up approach and adding functionality by doing that. And I, I suppose with Light, you, you can take advantage of all the uh, amazing advances that have been made over the decades in terms of lasers and optics and, and spectroscopy and, and all those sorts of things. Absolutely. One of the best parts about this project, about um, taking a bottom-up approach, is that this work is just beautifully collaborative. The physicists, like um, your audience, who develop these techniques, they aren't the people who grow diamonds, for example. De Beers grows diamonds. We all know that. Uh, They're the people who set up the spectroscopic interface. And so being able to create a new class of materials that interfaces with these optics is really um, powerful because the infrastructure exists and can be expanded upon. Um, And it's a really nice way to push the field forward with new materials and a new perspective on quantum. And, and you've spoken a lot about sensing, but it, 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 would it be possible to, to use your approach to, to create qubits for a, for a quantum computer? Or w- would you leave that to, another, uh, uh, to other technologies? You know, the one of the first quantum computers ever made was a molecule. It was this beautiful organometallic species with this iron um, center bound to this organic moiety. It was used to factor the number 15 uh, using a conventional NMR spectrometer. And that is a really elegant approach, which used uh, frequency addressable qubits. It would absolutely be possible to use some of our systems um, to do a similar experiment. Um, However, that system, which is just groundbreaking, determined that the prime factors of 15 were 3 and 5 with 75% accuracy and is not um, scalable in the way that current systems are scalable. And so we could make a quantum computer. It would just be a really bad one. And so I think that there are... I think there are ways that you could envision uh, using molecules for a quantum computer, in particular thinking about three-dimensional scaling that molecules might um, have, but this is not where I see the promise of this technology. And I think that the key hurdles that people who work on quantum computing are encountering are not um, challenges that would be ameliorated by a molecular approach. Um, I think that there are a lot of problems with, um, you know, high fidelity, quantum error correction. Uh, That's not, this this isn't the place where molecules have a competitive advantage. But sensing and potentially quantum communications, there are places where being able to control distance in electronics would make a really big impact, in my opinion. Another area of research that, that, that you work on is creating new materials at, at very high pressures. Uh, so, so what sort of new materials are you looking at? So that's, um, that's so much fun. Uh, one thing that we get to do using high pressure, so pressure is you know just a standard thermodynamic variable. But when we put materials into a diamond anvil cell, which can hit pressures comparable to the core of Mars, once you decompress or 
the earth, really, any pressure. Once you decompress, you start to move into a kinetic regime. And so not only can you work on creating new materials, you can start to create new bonding interactions and study them. So what we want to do with this is think about fundamental questions. Think about places where, for example, there's no bonding interaction. And if by creating one, could we start to understand why there's no bonding interaction? So we looked at that, for example, with iron and bismuth. Um, but what we want to do is access materials where there are open scientific questions. So um, iron bismuth is one of my favorite examples of this, where we can start to ask really simple questions like, can we take a magnetic moment, which is comprised of spin and orbital angular momentum, separate that onto two atoms, one a spin carrier, one an orbital angular momentum carrier, interact the two of them, and can we effectively reconstitute a J magnetic moment uh, from a two-atom designed system? And if we can't, where are we in that impossible to model uh, middle ground where you can't use either perturbative, perturbative approach to model the magnetism? And so being able to access materials in that space is really exciting to us. And we're now working on measuring uh, the magnetism of iron bismuth with um, defects in semiconductors, uh, NV centers in the diamonds that are part of the diamond anvil cell that we use to create it. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> so all of this can kind of come together in a beautiful way. Oh, that's that's really interesting. That I, 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 that makes perfect sense, of course. But that is is that the first time that that, that no, people have put um, those two things together? Uh, no, there are, um, a trio of really nice papers on this came out a couple of years ago. Um, the the references um, I don't have on the top off the top of my head, um, but conveniently one of the um, tests of that was using iron metal as a standard. And that is exactly what we need as our control experiment. Well, so so when you you're you're putting lots and lots of pressure onto that diamond, does that actually change the the properties of the NV center? Do you have to take that into consideration as well, or is a diamond rigid enough that it, it doesn't Absolutely. change? Absolutely, and so you need to do a lot of good control experiments, uh, and one of them is just measuring the constituent elements. Right. Okay. That, that that's interesting because you know when when, when I uh, when I took a look at, at your research and and I saw the, the the quantum side of things and I saw the um, the the high pressure side of things. I, I thought that, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, Dan is working on two very different um, topics, but are, are they different or are there lots of similarities? They're, they all come together. They're, they're pretty different, but they come together with the idea of using synthetic chemistry to access um, materials, and well, molecules and materials, which enable us to um, ask really fundamental questions. And so we, we're using um, coarse and fine-tuned knobs to manipulate magnetic and electronic structure to learn new things about physics. It's a... Uh delightful area and, and and the materials that you study um, are, are could those materials I mean obviously they're under very high pressure but do, do the things you learn about those materials in, in very extreme environments can they be applied to materials that are not under pressure yeah absolutely and I think that one um, way that we can support that is 
we, we collaborate extensively with uh, theoretical calculations, um, but looking at it, I shouldn't say this because I'm not the one doing it, but it's relatively straightforward to compare the electronic structure of a material down at ambient and at high pressure once it exists and you have the model for the perturbation. And so we can look at those questions and start to understand some of those properties a little bit more. And you mentioned that the pressures that you can generate with your diamond anvil are comparable to you know what you'd find inside a, a planet. Um, does that mean that your research informs or can inform geologists and planetary scientists about what's going on in, you know, in the, in the middle of the Earth or Mars or somewhere else? You know, we, we stole a lot of this from geophysics, right? Like diamond anvil cells are an amazing tool that was really developed um, for what is the ultimate black box problem, the center of the Earth. I mean, we get no information out of this. We get seismic waves and we kind of look at them and we say, okay, maybe there's a thing in there. And that's why there's this whole field of seismology, understanding the in the interior of the earth, which is completely mysterious. And so one of the tools that's been developed is diamond anvil cells going up to pressures to understand a lot of the dynamics of the iron um, at the core of the earth. So you know, I joke that maybe there's some iron bismuth at the core of the earth and that could um, explain some things, but I, I wouldn't want to take anything away. Um, th this is an established field in geophysics and there are amazing researchers who are using it to understand uh, the interior of the earth. I would love to learn more about the interior of the earth and work further with uh, these awesome scientists. So, so is, is that something that you're you're actively pursuing at the moment, or is that sort of on your on your list for for the future? Um, it's mainly on my list for the future, but um, I oddly know a lot of geophysicists, and so it's always a casual topic of conversation. I think uh, so, a, a bit on the back burner, but something that I'm always cognizant of. Um, that it, there are a lot of interesting problems that it would be fun to start to think about from a chemical perspective. And and, and what about your your research on on molecular qubits? What um, I mean, what what are you doing at the moment um, in your lab, and and what plans do you have for the future? Oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, so I think that the two easy ways to answer that one we are looking at. I guess, okay, three. So one, we're looking at just improving metrics, making these things better across a whole series of axes and understanding why they're good or not good. Um, another is implementing a range of sensing experiments. And so uh, thinking about places where we can take our first uh, generation of solid, but not, you know, excellent systems and actually use them to sense um, properties in quantum materials. And I think that that's something where having a z-axis control is really powerful. Um, we're also looking at a number of other uh, sensing applications. And then separately, we're pursuing entirely new systems. Um, we have a large area of new systems that we're looking at with lanthanide-based uh, molecules, uh, which is new to our lab, but I think 
potentially very exciting. Right. Okay. Oh, that sounds that sounds really fascinating. Well, I, I wish you luck with all of your your research, and uh, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a absolutely delightful experience. One of my favorite popular science books is The Second Kind of Impossible, The Extraordinary Quest for a New Form of Matter, by the physicist Paul Steinhardt. It chronicles the author's near-obsessive drive to find a naturally occurring quasi-crystal. As the name suggests, a quasi-crystal has an ordered atomic structure, but does not have translational symmetry, which is the hallmark of a proper crystal. This means that if you rotate the crystal by a specific angle, the pattern will not have changed. However, you can't pick up a copy of the crystal and move it to a new position so that it overlaps with the original crystal. Physicists had thought quasi-crystals were physically impossible, but in 1982, the material scientist Dan Sheckman created one in the lab and won a Nobel Prize for his efforts. Still, many scientists thought that quasi-crystals cannot be made by natural processes outside of the lab. Steinhardt disagreed and ended up leading an expedition to Siberia to prove that a mysterious quasi-crystal sample was indeed natural. And what's more, it probably had arrived on Earth in a meteorite. I really enjoyed reading about his adventure, so I was thrilled to discover that Steinhardt and colleagues have just published a new paper about quasi-crystals. Instead of Kamchatka, their latest sample was discovered in the sand hills of Nebraska. The tiny quasi-crystal was found inside a piece of fulgurite, also called fossilized lightning. Fulgurites are made of sand that has been fused by an electrical discharge. In this case, the fulgurite contained metal from a downed power line, and the quasi-crystal was a combination of these metals with elements found in sand. Steinhardt and colleagues believe that the discharge that created the quasi-particle could have been caused by the downed power line, a lightning strike, or both. You can read more about this exciting discovery on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Quasi-Crystal Found in Fossilized Lightning. And in that article, you'll find a link to my review of Steinhardt's book. And speaking of lightning, we also have a new article on the website about a technique for diverting the path of a lightning strike. Jean-Pierre Wolff and colleagues in Switzerland have shown that intense laser pulses can be used to improve the performance of a conventional lightning rod. The idea is that the laser pulses are fired up into the air, first passing by the tip of the lightning rod. The pulses ionize the air as they travel through, boosting its electrical conductivity. This creates a conducting channel from the sky to the lightning rod, boosting the likelihood that any nearby lightning will strike the rod rather than another object. The team tested the scheme on a lightning rod that protects a communications tower high in the Alps.
And you, you can read more about this research on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Laser Beam Diverts the Path of Lightning Strikes. As well as diverting lightning, lasers can also be used to create optical fiber-like channels through the air. Recently, Howard Milchberg and colleagues fired a cylindrical pattern of powerful laser pulses along a corridor at the University of Maryland. This creates a tube of ionized light that surrounds a core of air that was not ionized. The difference in the refractive indices of these two regions means that the tube behaves like a fiber when it comes to transmitting optical signals losing less of the signal than if the signal had been sent through normal air. The team reckons that this could be used to do optical communications in circumstances when it is not possible to lay optical fibers. You can read more on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Laser Sculpts a Waveguide in Campus Corridor. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Dana Friedman for joining me today, and a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when I'll be talking to a laser physicist about the state of the art in atomic clocks. Physics World.